0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Douglas Bell, the host for this interview. Today we'll be talking to Dr. Michael Lynch about his new book, Edward M. Almond and the U.S. Army from the 92nd Infantry Division to the 10th Corps, published by the University of Kansas Press in 2019. In this book, Dr. Lynch takes a comprehensive look at the accomplishments and downfalls of Edward Allman and sets out to balance the historical ledger by arguing that Allman played a significant role in the Army's history. Welcome to the show, Mike. Great to speak with you,
0: Doug. And I'd like to thank uh, New Books Network for, for having me on. Uh, this is a thrill and a privilege. Glad to have you. Um
1: I was wondering if you could begin the interview by saying a few words about your background and how you became interested in Ed Allman.
0: Well, I'm a retired Army officer, and um, this book grew out of my my Ph.D. in history at Temple University. And I'm very fortunate to work in the, the, the best archive for doing military history in the country, uh, the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center and um Alman is a fascinating character because all I ever knew about him was just the the few snippets that I'd heard over time that he was a he was a a raging racist and he was uh um, hated black soldiers and all that um but what got me interested in doing a a, a book on him is that I realized that. I kept hearing the same things over and over and over again. There was no balance to it. I couldn't figure out uh, how he was so um, so one-dimensional. I wanted to see if there was there was actually more to it than than the, essentially the rumor mill, the historical rumor mill had provided. Now I also have to say that as a historian, you have to go where the light is, and Almond uh, donated. All of his papers to the Military History Institute back in uh, 1977, two years before he died, and in his family, um, added a few more things after he passed away. And it's an incredibly rich collection because um, Almond saved seemingly every piece of paper he ever touched, certainly as a general officer he did. And he had a diary everywhere. Um, uh, he, was, he was very... Uh, meticulous about note taking and those kinds of things. So it was a it was a pretty rich uh, rich vein to 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 mine.
1: Wow, great! Sounds like you had a lot of uh, work to do in the archives there. Yes. Um, so can you uh, tell us a, a bit about uh, Almond's background, where he comes from, and his experiences early on in
0: the army? Okay. So Almond grew up in in uh, rural uh, Virginia, uh, in in the um, the Shenandoah Valley, uh, Culpeper area. He went to Culpeper High School. He was uh, actually born just over the mountain from there, but he, he moved to Culpeper when he was young. And he initially didn't see himself uh, with a uh, with a career in the Army. Um, he uh, got interested in that because there was a a man in the town uh, that that he. Uh, had been a an officer in the Virginia Guard, and I'm not sure if it was the National Guard or the State Guard. I believe it was the State Guard, and in a, in a unit that later was subsumed into the National Guard. And he was kind of influenced by him, and and he was also influenced by his uh, by his history teacher, who kind of sparked his interest in in military things. Um, he uh, was his he didn't come from a lot of money his, his father was a uh, was a, a farm equipment salesman and so um, they weren't dirt poor but they weren't by any means rich uh, I, I would probably classify them as sort of uh, lower middle class in terms of you know earnings even uh, according to the times um, I said that because he was fortunate to get an appointment to Virginia Military Institute. And uh, at the time VMI was, uh, of course it was all male until the 1970s, but uh, at the time uh, VMI was a, um, you you could go there on a state scholarship. If you agreed to do uh, some sort of service work after you graduated. Now, he graduated with the class of 1913, and we didn't have ROTC then. There was not an automatic commission. The top two students in the class were offered uh, commissions in the Army. Allman was number three. And uh, there, there just was no path to commission. You were you're in the Corps of Cadets there for four years, and then you went away. Allman did extremely well. He actually finished VMI in three years. Um, it, and and the way that went is they took a, a placement exam before they entered uh, VMI. And he was actually, based on his performance in high school, um, he was he, uh, placed with the sophomore class. And he did extremely well in all of his courses. And as I said, he graduated third in the class. I said that because he is – he remained a, a great student throughout of his throughout his life, especially in the army. Um, now, 1913, uh, there's for the United States there's not much going on. Uh, clouds of war gathering over Europe, but uh, the United States was very isolationist at the time. So, Almond got a job uh, teaching high school uh, in Alabama, and that that became a Formative period because he, he met the woman who he would later married, but um, as the United States started moving more towards a war footing, uh, he began working toward getting a uh, a uh, a commission in in the army. So um, at, at, as I was, I misspoke. He graduated in 1915, um, not 1913. I don't know, lost my eye for a second. Um, that is important because. That does not put him with the famous West Point class of of 1915, the class that the stars fell on Eisenhower and that group. Uh, he actually did not receive a commission until November of 1916, as we started to to direct commission a lot of a lot of junior officers. So he's not, even though he graduated from college at the same time uh, some of the, those greats did, he was not. In their cohort, if you will.
1: Right. So the U.S. Army joined uh, World War One rather late. So did Alman um, have any experience fighting in the war? And what was that like for him?
0: Yes, he did. Um, <clears throat> first, uh, he he was um, he was in Officer Candidate School, class number one at Fort Leonard, or I'm sorry, Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. Um, there's another. OCS that restarted at Fort Benning several years later, but uh, after his uh, OCS class, he was assigned to the Fourth Infantry Division. And at the time, the Army was building the biggest army it ever had that we had ever had up until that time. And so there are a number of of uh, expansions. And he was assigned first as a um, machine gun uh, company commander. He went, He was promoted very rapidly to captain, and he became a machine gun company commander. And then for a while, he was an acting battalion commander of a machine gun battalion in the 4th Infantry Division. They moved around and trained at different places. Uh, and one of the things I think is, uh, is most interesting is that uh, he trained at Gettysburg, on the battlefield at Gettysburg. Um, and it, it wasn't in the area that later became Camp Colt where the the tanks were training, uh, but he was uh, on the field at Gettysburg for several months and then uh, moved to North Carolina for several months. And then he eventually shipped out uh, with his unit out of uh, Newport News. Um, One of the ships carrying his regiment was um, was torpedoed, and they lost uh, several soldiers uh, just off uh, the coast of England just before they got there. He later, uh, his unit eventually arrived in France, and they were assigned to a a French unit for a while, and then uh, they moved up uh, on their own, and uh, he was actually uh, wounded, uh, nearly killed in action one year to the day after he had married his wife, and uh, uh, he was uh, evacuated to a field hospital and uh, was recuperating for for uh, for quite a while, he was he was struck in the head by uh, a shell fragment, and uh, his uh, uh, the his senior NCO, a senior sergeant that was with his with, that was with him, was killed right next to him. And so after he recovered, uh, he got back uh, finally got back to the unit just in time for the last offensive of the of the war, and uh, he was. Uh, uh, given a battalion command for that uh, for that last offensive and then after the war most people don't remember that we we stayed in europe for another year or so on occupation duty and his uh, uh, unit was one of those that remained on occupation duty in france uh, for over a year great um so the
1: interwar army is known for having really decreased in size there wasn't uh a lot of opportunities for promotion. So did Edward did Almond stay in the army and if he did, how did he uh prop, work his way and maintain his position in the army? Um yeah, so what was his interwar experience like?
0: That was that was very difficult for for most officers because the army was trying to to reduce its numbers and uh and and um a lot of officers were were uh, released from active duty against their will. Uh, they had to petition the army to be allowed to to remain on active duty, and um, uh, Almond was able to do that. He got very very high marks from his uh, from his regiment commander and his brigade commander. As uh, brigade commander was a breeder General E. E. Booth, uh, who really kind of took him under his wing and, and uh, mentored him uh, before they came back to the States. And, and then uh, he argued on Almond's behalf to stay on active duty. And, uh, and he was able to do that. Uh, But like almost all the officers uh, at that time, he, he took a rank reduction. He had been promoted to, uh, to major, uh, but then he reverted back to captain after the, um, after he returned back to the, to the States and, he remained a captain for several more years.
1: Did Almond? Um, what were his assignments during this period? Did he attend? Did, go ahead. Yeah,
0: that that's where the um, uh, his role as a, a as a student comes in. Um, he said at one point that he really didn't like teaching, but that's not really true. Uh, that that that's sort of army bravado. Uh, He really, he relished uh, being a teacher and he relished being a student. He was a tremendous student of his craft. And so um, the first place that he went to teach, uh, before the war, he had taught at Marion Military Institute. And it was kind of a combined uh, high school, college. And uh, when he went back, he became uh, the professor of military science of the Marion Military Institute and and started raising their ROTC program. The Reserve Officer Training Corps was a new invention just just uh, in the World War I era, and so he um, spent some time doing that. Uh, after that, he went to the um, the Infantry Officer Advance Course at Fort Benning. Um, after the Infantry Officer advance Course at Fort Benning, he was uh, ordered to remain in place as an instructor that is an indicator of 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 a good a good student the army's done that for for generations uh, you know the best the best students are often held over to be to be instructors and so he was uh, an instructor in the tactics department he was teaching uh, machine guns and that kind of thing uh, in the same era that um, The uh, the assistant commandant was uh, Lieutenant Colonel George Marshall, and he served with um, uh, another uh, major who outranked him just a little bit was uh, Omar Bradley, also taught in the tactics team, and several of the um, the senior commanders of World War II would also also were teaching there at around the same time. Uh, He was there from about uh, 1924 to 28. And, um the uh that's where he, he he was marked as a Marshall man um, Marshall could pick out he was a very very good judge of character and and that's where he picked up on almond um, there's some other rumors about about uh, Marshall and almond's relationship we can deal with later if you want but that that's that's where they met uh, from there he went to uh, Fort Leavenworth for the command and General Staff College and by that time he was a a uh, he was a, uh, a major again. Uh, Command and General Staff College at the time was was a two year program, and so uh, he was. And instead of the one year that it is now, there was a period of two or three years, two or three classes that actually went there for two years, and so he was he was there for 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 two years. Um, and as I said, he's he's. A, uh, He's a voracious reader, tremendous student. And as he started to look to figure out um, where he's going to go next, uh, he's not anywhere near senior enough to get a command of any kind. So what he argued to do is he wanted to be a, um, uh, as I was, I I skipped one. he actually did get a command next. Uh, he went from from, uh, from Fort Leavenworth to the Philippines. Now the Philippines were the incubator for for all officers back then. In my era, uh, it was Germany. If you anybody who stayed in the army longer than three years is going to Germany. Uh, back then, it was the Philippines, and it was the only really the only overseas posting we had. And it was a it was a premier posting. Everybody wanted to get it. So uh, he commanded a battalion in the Philippines. Um, now the Philippines at this time, these were Philippine Scouts. They were part of the army, but they were native soldiers with white American uh, officers. So it sort of foreshadowed what would happen to him in World War II with uh, with other officers. Now. Um, the training cycle in the Philippines in the 1930s. Now he he arrived there in 1930. Uh, Training cycle there was kind of geared to the weather and they've got a wet season and a dry season. And the dry season is very, very short and the wet season is very, very long and about all you could do in the wet season was Try to keep from being washed away. You couldn't do any useful training, so he very quickly tired of what. In in certain ways, the Philippines had become uh, a rest area, even though it was the only overseas posting. So he developed a river crossing technique, um, and that technique was in today we think about bridging and where we put engineers and that's that sort of thing. They didn't have anything like that then. You know, these are, these are uh, uh, foot mobile infantry and and uh, not even horses, mules. So uh, he developed a training plan to cross a river. And I've forgotten how, how wide it was, but to cross a river using only the unit's organic equipment. So literally, you know, blowing up trousers to make wraps uh, and those kinds of things. So they trained on it, trained on it, and then did a large exercise to uh, to demonstrate the capability. Almond was nothing if not a very good promoter. And he knew an opportunity when he saw it. Um, so he got film crews there. He invited the governor general. Um, I think Mrs. Theodore Roosevelt was there. Teddy was gone by that time, but he was, she was back in the islands visiting. Um, and all of the, the glitterati of the Philippines were there to see them um, cross, this, uh, cross this river. Uh, and they did they did very well. They took lots and lots of pictures. Um, those are some of the, the best pictures that I was able to look at. You see a whole string of, you know, there, there's a, there's a technique for teaching mules how to swim across the river. <laughs> you know, they had mule skinners. So the other thing that, that Allman did was, you know, he planned his training very meticulously. In this case, he, he did an excellent job of, of promoting the training and he prepared in great detail. And at the end, he wrote up tremendous notes. He became, Famous throughout the army for river crossing, the chief of engineers uh, wrote to ask him for for his data. Uh, the the uh, report that he created out of that river crossing exercise became an article in the infantry journal. He provided to the chief of engineers that became a field manual for the army. The film that uh, that uh, you know today it would be combat camera, but I, I've forgotten who it was then. Uh, In the 30s, there was Signal Corps, but um, they uh, they created a training film out of it. So uh, he got a lot of a lot of big press. And I might add that while he was at Fort Benning teaching, he was writing all the time. He wrote lots and lots of articles in professional journals. That's what happened a lot during the interwar years is, is people really dedicated to that kind of thing. He. Commanded the uh, the uh, battalion for about three years, just shy of three years, um, and was to rotate home in the summer of 1933. And and I tell you the um, the the challenge that people in the army today would be shocked at is that things were so bad because of the depression that Allman and many others were ordered to take a month of leave without pay. So he spent um, uh, a month or so sailing around the Pacific. He went to Korea and visited friends who were stationed there, Japan, China, and uh, and then uh, uh, came back to the States. And from there, he went to D.C., which is where the Army War College was at the time. And uh, he was in the class of uh, 1934. Class of 1934 was um, interesting for every class has general officers that come out of it, some more than others. That's the only class that had two five-star generals come out of it. Uh, Omar Bradley and uh, uh, Bill Halsey from the Navy were both in in there. Uh, I'm sorry, Halsey of course was an admiral, but there's two five stars in that class. The only one that that had uh, two future five stars in it. Several other division commanders. It's a uh, their class picture looks like um, a class picture of the senior leadership of of World War Two. Um,
1: what was the the education like at the War College during that time?
0: Well, um, very much it it was. Still strategic focus stru- focused on the strategic level as it is now, um, but a lot of it was lectures from uh, key individuals. Um, for instance, uh, Bernard Baruch, who had been uh, uh, I've forgotten what his title was during World War One, um, and one of the great financiers, anyway, he came and talked to the class about ha- how. National level finance works. You know, we didn't call it uh, the the elements of national power then, as a moniker, but we certainly referred to them in in the same in the same vein. Uh, Fox Connor, who was the 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 great uh, operations officer, General Pershing's operation officer during World War One, and uh, mentor and godfather to a lot of the uh, later senior officers, uh, came and talked about. Operations at at army level. They also did some things that um, that we would find kind of strange today, but when you look in the context of the time, they weren't really that that strange. Now, um, I'll come back to their projects in a minute. But one of the things that they did was uh, they did a lot of Civil War battlefield staff rides. That was a key part. They did a lot of planning for homeland defense, and they used some of those Civil War battlefields and those sorts of things. If we were to have to defend the United States, how would this go? At the same time, the Army staff, the war, I'm sorry, the, at the time, the War Department general staff was developing a series of what were called the color plans which with, with a different color assigned to each um Potential adversary. Most people know about War Plan Orange for uh, Japan, War Plan Black for Germany. Uh, they probably don't know about War Plan Purple from Brazil or War Plan Green from Mexico, War Plan Red for England, War Plan Carnation from Canada and those kinds of things. And at this time, we look back and we say, why, why are we wasting time? With things like, you know, our greatest ally, uh, Great Britain and, you know, longest unguarded border with Canada and that, that kind of, well, politics aren't always the same. And we we didn't have that special relationship yet. Now, I don't think anybody realistically thought that we were going to go to war with Britain, but we might end up in an alliance or we might end up outside an alliance that they're in. Because, again, we're still have had a lot of. Uh, a lot of uh, isolationist feeling in the United States, but Mexico was a much different issue. Uh, Mexico had started, uh, you know, the revolution that that eventually led to the, the uh, crossing the border back in 1916 uh, was still a pretty serious uh, event. I mean, the, the Mexican politics were pretty much, uh, uh, dangerous at that time and it might not be the Mexicans it might be German and or Japanese influences which were happening throughout Central and South America at the time as alman was going to find out later the other thing they did is they did uh, uh, projects um, some of them did individual projects some of them did projects together with other people um, similar to what Army War College students do today. Um, Owen was involved in a, in a project uh, designing uh, what he called a strike force. Um, and uh, that was based on the, the, the sort of new Army plan that the chief of staff of the time, General Douglas MacArthur, developed, where the country was divided up into, into sort of numbered Army areas. We had to have plans to defend those areas. Um, Some of them were amazingly prescient, like uh, Navy Captain Bill Halsey looked at uh, what are the Japanese intents in uh, what is the Japanese intent in the Pacific? Pretty interesting for him to get that. So um, World War II breaks
1: out. Uh, Where is when the war starts and what are what's what are his what's his assignment?
0: Well, let me. Let me back up uh, to cover a couple of interwar um, jobs he had. At the time he graduated from War College in 1934, the War College was actually part of the War Department General Staff. It was literally a section in the War Department General Staff. Most people after, um, after the um, uh, War College went to the General Staff he wanted to go to operations division or at that time was called war plans division, but he was kind of disappointed. He, he went to uh, military intelligence division. And today it'd be, it's G2 and he was assigned as the Latin America desk officer. Now what's interesting about that is the guy who got Mexico um, spoke Spanish. Almond did not speak Spanish. Allman got all the rest of Latin America, South of Mexico. And uh, he had 19 countries to watch and, and the, um, the other guy only had one. Uh, he went into that, like you went into everything else with great detail. And uh, uh, he was dealing with uh, attachés and those kinds of things, uh, really watching to see what influences the Germans And the Japanese were having in South America, especially, and it it was a real eye opener. Uh, We don't read much about that if if you're not a South American specialist, but there was significant, um, uh, both commercial and military, I mean, purely above board, you know, selling uh, Datsuns and uh, and then also military influence. After that again he, he doesn't see a role for him to to command anywhere and this sort of insatiable desire to go to learn more he asked to go to the Air Corps Tactical School at Maxwell Air Force Base Alabama it's the predecessor of the Air War College and he wanted to go there just to see what what the Army Air Corps at the time learned and how a ground commander would operate with aircraft. That was important for several reasons because he learned a lot about how the Army Air Corps operated and it's going to play into a lot of his future when he when he gets to Korea. He also discovered that he absolutely loved to fly. Uh, they came out of there with an observer rating and, uh, and from then on, he logged every single hour he took in an aircraft. It didn't matter if it was a civilian airplane, a military. He, he just loved to fly. And that's going to come up uh, a little bit later. From there, uh, he was, um, again, he had sort of pick of the litter. uh, No, no good jobs available. Good meaning command. So he asked to attend the Naval War College. So now he's got, Three of the three war colleges, and um, he graduated top of his class from the Naval War College. And each of the services has a an arrangement with the other service to provide instructors. Um, Navy asked for Alman because he did that well. Uh, they wanted him to 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 come there and teach. Alman did not want to do that, and and got out of it by going back to um, so he graduated at the top of his class at the Naval War College. And the Navy then requested that he be stationed there as an instructor. Again, a mark of his skill as a, as a, as a student. Uh, Alman absolutely did not want to do that. He was, even though he's a voracious student, he was kind of tired of school by that time. And so uh, he he uh, made a deal to go back to the Army staff or the War Department general staff And he went right back to his old job because they had there were were things percolating there. Uh, They had some some problems. Uh, And so he stayed there for another six months. And in January 1941, uh, he finally got a a sort of a leadership job. He went to the Sixth Army Corps, uh, oddly enough. Back in Providence, Rhode Island, right next to the to the Naval War College, uh, he was the the operations officer of the corps. And they did a large, uh, and then he, then he became the chief of staff. They did a large uh, exercise. They were they were in charge of of um, exercising all of the uh, the National Guard units in the New England area. And they completed a large uh, exercise in uh, December of 1941, just before uh, Pearl Harbor.
1: So he's in Rhode Island when Pearl Harbor happened. So what is happens to Alman? What's the mobilization like and where does he end up?
0: Right. Well, uh, it, it's funny. He was actually the day of Pearl Harbor. He was, he was, uh, he was in Washington uh, and uh, uh, he was at a football game. Uh, the, the Washington Redskins were playing the uh, the Philadelphia Eagles, and it was blood sport, just like it is today. And they literally had an announcement, just like you see in the movies, where you know military um, personnel call your unit, and uh, that's how he found out. So he goes racing back, and about um, a month, well, a couple months later, that they were. Pulling senior officers out very quickly, the chief of staff went out. And he replaced him. About three months later, he got uh, alerted to to go to um, Fort Huachuca, Arizona. He was promoted to brigadier general and assigned as the assistant division commander of the 93rd Infantry Division, which was one of the two black divisions that the that the Army had. Let me back up and explain two things real quick typically what happened for, for senior officers in selecting who was going to command that had a lot to do with, with, uh, with Marshall's little black book, of course Uh, the, the chief of uh, commander of, uh, of army general headquarters, uh, Leslie J. McNair had a lot to do with that as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, um, and uh, Mark Clark, who was, uh, um, Chief of Staff at the time, not Army Chief of Staff, but um, General Headquarters. They they knew who was who, and the typical path for a future division commander would be to serve a period of time as an assistant division commander or an artillery commander. Divisions had um, much as today slightly different titles, but the division commander is a two star general. Uh, the assistant division commanders are one star, and the, divi- and the commander of the division artillery was a one star, and each of the regiment commanders were colonels. Um, the concept of raising each of the divisions is each division, as it was raised, then became uh, the parent of another division, and it would, at, at a certain time in its in its training, it would be required to send a cadre of officers and NCOs from that division to create the new division. Okay. The 93rd division, since it was a, a black division, had a little bit different um, path. The um, The 93rd's three regiments, three infantry regiments, were the um, uh, 25th Infantry Regiment, which was one of the two um, infantry regiments that were, authorized by, by general order after uh, World War I. There are two uh, black regiments, two, two infantry and two cavalry regiments. Um, another, I'm sorry, did I say it twice? And then another of, the, of its regiments was a, um, a National Guard regiment, a separate regiment that had been raised uh, during the interwar years, but it wasn't on active duty. And then the third regiment was all draftees, and they all uh, they went to Fort Huachuca, Arizona, for a couple of reasons. One, that's where the um, the 25th Infantry was already, and two, there was no community in America that wanted um, uh, large numbers of armed black soldiers in their background, in their in their backyard. Uh, Fort Huachuca is um, uh, driving distance to Tucson, but mm-hmm. there is nothing else around it but scorpions and tarantulas, and I think that that is still true today. So that's where they put that first Black Division. He went there for about the first six months.
1: What was the training like for for him, that, and especially with his uh, Black troops in in
0: Arizona? Each of the the new general officers, their their, their plates were full, and they had their own. Training to go to, uh, to you know, essentially to get qualified for this for this command, and then uh, we can cover that more when he gets to to his division. But at the time, we did not have the the U.S. Army Training and Doctrine Command as we have today. So a bunch of soldiers arrive at a at a division base, and they do everything from Initial reception all the way up through uh, um, combined arms training and um, for uh, they're, they're broken up into categories and they have to or uh, periods and they have to pass each one and be certified at each one. Uh, so today we would have basic training and then advanced individual training. And then you would start with, you know, squad platoon, company, battalion, regiment size exercises. And in World War II, it finished off with a division-level exercise um, in the um, and in and in multi-division exercises in the in the Carolinas.
1: So, following these exercises, were they then um, prepared to go overseas?
0: They were, and that that took a lot for for many of the black units to be able to get there. It, it they had a harder time than most. Uh, Alman. Uh, about six months after or five months after he arrived at the 93rd, um, he was ordered to um, Fort McClellan, Alabama, to to activate the 92nd Infantry Division, which was the other the other black division. Now, there had been a couple of others. There were plans for two more, but uh, the, the whole division activation plan later changed. But um, the 2nd Cavalry Division was a... Um, uh, uh, a, uh, a black, uh, partially black division. It was, it was a um, had a white uh, brigade and a black brigade. Some of those soldiers went to the 92nd, went to the 93rd, but um, Almond largely had to put that that division together primarily from uh, cadre from the 93rd, and um, the mo- all the rest of it was, were were uh, draftees. So. Whereas the 93rd at least had a had a base of one regiment that was on active duty and a base of one regiment that had been in, had some kind of training, in the National Guard. Um, uh, the 92nd division was uh, draftees across the board, and what made it even tougher is that, as I said, nobody wanted 20,000 armed black men in their backyard, uh, north or south. Obviously, the south was much more Um, uh, much more hesitant to have that but it was true across the board so Allman's division headquarters and division base and division artillery headquarters were at Fort McClellan but he had the added challenge of each of his regimental combat teams were at a different base so one was based at uh, Camp Robinson, Arkansas uh, one at um um Camp Atterbury, Indiana, and one at Camp Claiborne, Kentucky. And so he spent, he and his staff spent most of their time on the road going to all of these places. Now you ask about training. When the division received an activation date, a certain number of days before that activation date, I think 78 days before that activation date, the division commander and his staff were supposed to be on board. But then they had to go to training at different places around the country in those uh, 78 days. And on day 78 or day 79 is uh, when troops started pouring in. So it wasn't necessarily that they weren't ready to train on that day. They were activated that day. So he activated in October of 1942, but he didn't have a full complement of soldiers at all locations until uh, December. He also had some other problems with training that most other, uh, division commanders did not have. All the soldiers were, uh, took the army general classification test, the AGCT, sort of the grandfather of today's, uh, armed service of vocational aptitude battery, the ASVAB. And that, um, that test was not designed to be an IQ test, but it sort of worked out that way. And, uh, what it showed is that there's sort of a bell curve that all soldiers were supposed to, to fall into uh, both white and black. And what it showed was the average bell curve for, for, for white soldiers would put, you know, one to two, 3% in category one, maybe, maybe 5% in category one. And category one is where, where you get um, officers. Those those guys would be off to to uh, to OCS. Category two uh, would be non-commissioned officers, uh, and some in category three. The idea was that the bulk of the soldiers would come out of out of categories two and three, um, and in category four were kind of the the marginal performers based on um, education level and that kind of thing. Now we all know that. There can be smart people who lack education, but those were. This is a pretty good bell curve that that really did root out uh, those people. Well, for black soldiers, there's also a category five uh, because they did even worse than than some of the white soldiers. So when you superimpose those two bell curves, the white soldiers and and black soldiers, you find that. Not very many uh, black soldiers reached category one, a few percent in category two, a much larger fraction in category three. and then most of the black soldiers in the army were in cat- were in categories four and five. Um, when the 92nd division soldiers took their AGCT, that bell curve looked something like that, except that 13% of the division, Thirteen percent of about twenty thousand soldiers were illiterate and could not take the test. So, an eighth of of uh, you know the the force. Mm-hmm. Uh, they also had many more significant medical problems, and all these come from 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 the lack of 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 opportunities that these uh, civilians had had um, in civilian life before they came on active duty. I mean the the. Uh, the black schools were not anywhere near what what uh, white schools were in terms of, of quality. And nobody cared about that or none of the white community cared that that those those blacks, um, black schools were not doing well for their their students. And and the um, the black schools weren't funded well enough to be any better. Uh, they lacked the that you're. Your average soldier from World War II uh, had had lived through the Depression, and that was a tough time. There was, you know, mm-hmm, uh, really. nutrition was not nearly what it is today. We certainly didn't have that many fat soldiers. Uh, you know, rickets and scurvy and things like you know that we read in history books that was that was common then. But even so, those white civilians coming into the army to become soldiers were still in much better. Uh, much better physical medical shape than, than their, their, their black counterparts. And in most cases, just because they had, uh, better facilities and better ac- generally speaking, better, uh, access to facilities. Um, it's certainly not like it is now. Um, but, uh, because a lot of people did come from, from poor parts of the country, but nevertheless, there was a, there was a sharp, sharp difference between those, uh, soldiers. Now that said, there were there were uh, there were smart soldiers. There were there were, were soldiers both black and white who did very well in A.G.C.T. And just like uh, for the white divisions, the, the soldiers who were in category one went off to O.C.S. or they went to the Army Air Corps. Um, the Army Air Corps really irritated the ground army by by scooping up all of the the soldiers who did best on the test. Of those that remained, uh, Almond discovered this: the ones who were in technical jobs, such as artillery or engineers, uh, did well. They were in the medical people; they they did very well. They were were cut above the infantry. That's where he had his biggest problems was with the infantry, because of those problems. And uh, for whatever reason, soldiers uh, don't complete training. You know, people soldiers falling out all the time, and uh, they had to get replacements. Mm-hmm. Uh, soldiers would go away to OCS and come back as lieutenants, and so they had to be integrated in. Um, the um, at one point he did give up a a cadre of officers and NCOs to create another uh, black division that never came to fruition. But uh, there there's lots of turmoil that always affected the training of. The division and being separated in those four locations didn't help at all. Uh, finally, about uh, in 1943, they were able to all move together to Fort Huachuca, Arizona, where they could train uh, large-scale operations. They they lost a month or two train just in transit to get there, and then they lost another couple months because the units had kind of lost cohesion again. They they, they were cohesive as regiments where, where they'd been, but then they came together as a as a division, and it was a it was a problem. So, um, meanwhile, the army thought that all black soldiers who were headed to um, to combat units uh, they should all go to to the 92nd. So, anybody who failed out of any other school was sent to. The 92nd. So they grew this, what they called a casual camp of all these people who uh, fell out of other training somewhere else and ended up in the 92nd. And they they weren't suitable as soldiers in any in any capacity. So but he he kept having to deal with them. So.
1: So how did this um, training and composition of the division affect their uh, capabilities in theater during World War Two?
0: Well, once they, they, uh, as I said, they, they kept getting restarted. It took them about two years to, to complete their training. So the, as I said, the division activated in October, 1942, and the first regiment deployed to, um, to Italy in, uh, in July of 1944. Now, the thing I have to say about, about almond. um, he he gets a lot of bad press for being a um, a racist, and by the the standards of today, certainly was. And by the standards of the time, uh, he he wasn't as white people would see it, <laughs> uh, but he certainly was, as was most of most of society. That said, he's an army officer first, and. Uh, anybody who messed with his soldiers was going to have a problem. And uh, he found out just before, uh, just after they finished their their large training exercise in in North Carolina and just before they would eventually deploy, that the War Department was thinking about not deploying the 92nd. The 93rd Division had gone to the Pacific and only one regiment actually uh, saw combat. The other two were kind of Broken up and assigned to Steve missions Steve missions and that kind of thing, and uh, so Allman argued very vehemently with uh, with with General McNair and and General Marshall that you know he'd promised those soldiers the opportunity to deploy. They trained as a unit and and they needed to go, and and finally, uh, Marshall Marshall came to do one last inspection and. He said, "All right, let's do that." All Marshall didn't really want to deploy him. He actually wanted to bring him to to D.C. and and uh, make him uh, and sort of palace guards and mm-hmm. to free up white soldiers to go train. So, um, so they deployed as um, by by regiment, which is it was typical at the time. And once the first regiment arrived. Uh, it was assigned to another division, in this case, 1st Armored Division. Uh, same technique we had used in World War One. So the new unit comes in and goes out with a seasoned combat experienced unit to kind of get get its feet wet, if you will. So right. it did some operations uh, with the 1st Armored Division and then took over a portion of that, – that regiment actually took over the 1st Armored Division's sector. Now, you said it was in Italy. And it was assigned to the Fourth Corps, which is part of the Fifth Army. Um, and uh, the the uh, General Mark Clark had, um, I think, three corps there. And then the uh, the British Eighth uh, Army was on the other. It was on the on the western half of the 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 Italian boot, and the Eighth uh British Eighth was on the the eastern half on the Adriatic Sea. So. Um, the first armor division went to do some uh, reorganization. Uh, to they they had developed a new formation uh, based on experience, and uh, so that regiment from the 92nd took over the first armor division sector and actually did some operations and did did pretty well. The rest of the division arrived in uh, in in October, and uh, and and Alman arrived and and. Um, and took command. I think about the the first of October. Okay, so how did they perform in Italy? Uh, initially, they did pretty well. As I said, that first regiment that got there, the 370th Infantry Regiment, did did pretty well. But they had some things that kind of knocked them off stride. Um, as I said, Allman, um, uh arrived about the first of October and assumed command and stood up the division there. We, today, we do a, you know, a colors uncasing ceremony. You know, when division commander arrives. Uh, two days after that, the Division Chief of Staff, who had led the advance party over, was killed in action. And so that that disrupted the headquarters pretty quick. Um, he was uh, replaced by uh, the, the Division tr- G3, the operations officer, um, uh, Colonel Bill McCaffrey, who is probably the most important thing that happened in Oman's life. Um, it's sad that the Chief of Staff was killed, but um, Bill McCaffrey became Oman's uh, 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 not just friend, but a um, he became his guardrail uh, for, and he remained so for the rest of his life. Um, but um, the the other thing that happened is that the the division gained a new regiment. Um, <clears throat> by this time in the war, this is. Uh, October 1944, um, you know, Rome had 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 been captured uh, June 4th, 1944. That was kind of overshadowed by Operation Overlord, and and the Fifth Army was just stripped uh, to the bone to to provide forces for the invasion of of southern France, which took place in uh, in August of 44. Uh, and so there was lots of reorganization happening then, and it was really considered a, a kind of a backwater theater, um, which is certainly why the 92nd um, went there. But nobody really considered that there's anything happening after after Rome, when in fact there's a whole lot happening in Italy after Rome. But uh, on the great, you know, the great map board in Eisenhower's headquarters. Uh, that's completely different theater and you know so uh, this other infantry regiment was a separate black regiment that uh, was from the National Guard and uh, they had been in southern Italy deployed by themselves well by this point in the war they, the the um, they really didn't um, need that regiment and they they uh, were broken up into small, um, units and put on guard duty and air base ground defense and those kinds of things. Uh, we, we had full air superiority in Southern Italy by that time. So uh, we, we didn't need as many infantry and, and certainly the first units that, that the white leadership would, would send to other tasks as assigned would be the, the black infantry units. So this unit had been scattered out penny packets all over Italy. They were brought together and assigned to the 92nd or attached to the 92nd Infantry Division. And this is where um, Alman did the right thing for the right or he did the the wrong thing for the wrong reasons and the wrong thing for the right reasons. Um, first of all, as I said, his soldiers were his soldiers. And like most units throughout our army's history, you know, my soldiers are 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 the essence of goodness. And everybody else is a savage, especially if they happen to be in our competing unit who's just there to take resources away from us. Well, this new unit, new regiment, came in, the 366th Infantry Regiment, um, came as a full black regiment from regimental commander to soldier. They were all black, no no, uh, no white officers. Um, Allman distrusted them because they were a new unit that he had never seen before. and. Also, because he wasn't sure how he felt about those black officers. Um, here's where he, 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 he messed up, but for the right reasons. As I said, we took uh, new units and plugged them into seasoned units. Mm-hmm. Um, and that had been the, the standard method of doing things since World War I. Allman did the same thing. He took the three battalions of the 366 and he, he put one battalion with each of his regiments, which by this time were were fairly well seasoned. Um, the reason that was the wrong thing to do in that circumstance is because this unit already had no unit cohesion because of being scattered out. It, it really needed to be together in order to kind of grow some unit cohesion and be more effective. Um mm-hmm as a unit uh, that uh, that mistake later came back to haunting um, the regimental commander about 10 days after he was assigned asked to be relieved because he couldn't work with all he felt like everybody was against his unit, that kind of thing. Allman did as, as requested and relieved him, sent him home and put the, uh, the assistant regimental or d- deputy regimental commander in charge. And, um, the crosstalk about that was everybody said that that was a terrible thing to do that. They shouldn't have taken our commander away. It's just, uh, you know, the white overlords, um, you know, smacking us around. And once you get through all that grousing, then you realize, well, this regimental commander wasn't really that great after all. And, and, and his deputy commander was a lot better. So, from from the tactical basis, uh, that was a a, a a good decision to have the the deputy commander uh, come up. But that unit experienced problems throughout its um, throughout its time. So that it, it's going to get worse here in just a few months. Well, how does it get uh, worse? <laughs> well, the um, as I said, the unit. Uh, the 92nd had done pretty well in its initial um, initial actions. Once it got to the the first regiment did, and the, the first regiment that went, the 370th, was the one that Almond had rated best of all. I might add that um, Almond was a a severe taskmaster, and people who did not measure up, did not stay around very long, and uh, by the time he deployed, he had relieved all three of his regimental commanders and several battalion commanders and company commanders. He, He simply would not put up with substandard work and especially substandard knowledge about your profession. Remember what I said about him being a student of the profession? He expected every Every officer and senior NCO to know their know their jobs very well. So uh, they started having difficulties as they moved up uh, through. Um, they're they're up in the, the Southern Alps, uh, which aren't they aren't really Alps yet, but they're they're certainly high hills. And there were a couple of places where they they ran into problems, and several of the units broke and ran. And most of those were in the unit that had been attached to them, the 366th Infantry Regiment. What's interesting about the 366th Infantry Regiment, by the way, is uh, they had all their black officers. Uh, By and large, they all had a much higher education than the the black and even some of the white uh, officers in the rest of the division. Um, seven of them had PhDs. There were several lawyers who were, um, not, not JAG lawyers. they were lawyers in the infantry. Um, many of them had gone to most officers had gone to either Howard University or, uh, Wilberforce University, which were Howard's kind of the West point for, uh, for, for black officers and Wilberforce's um, similar. Um, despite that, I think they're, their cohe- unit cohesion just they just didn't have it and it, it broke down a lot and when I say they broke and ran um, they had Almond had to form what he called straggler lines uh, of MPs to stop units who were you know pouring down off hills and those sorts of things uh, all units had those um, but they were especially pronounced in the 92nd and especially in the, in the, the 366th infantry regiment. Now the, um, Oman, well, he's going to form an opinion later on. He wanted his soldiers to succeed. And he really believed that he was the best, uh, one best person available to help them succeed. Uh, McCaffrey, The guy I mentioned before uh, believed that also, and he thinks that he thought that Almond was put in command because of his training ability. And Marshall essentially said that Almond, Almond could get if anybody could get the best out of him, it would be Almond. So he really did want them to succeed. This wasn't him sitting there thinking, "Okay, they're going to get mowed down, and then I'll get pulled out to another command." he kind of knew his career rose or fell on what they did. Um, even he agreed that um, there were certain special individuals who did extremely well. And one of those was Lieutenant John Fox. Uh, he's an artillery forward observer. And at uh, Soma Colonia, Italy, in uh, December 1944, uh, the the Germans are making a huge push against uh, against the North. At this part of the war, um, after the fall of Rome, Italy had had switched sides or allied again. But there were some Italian units that were they were either individual units, partisan units or units that were being forced by the Germans uh, to uh, to attack the Americans. So they were attacking this town, Soma Colonia, and um, uh, Lieutenant Fox uh, stopped the attack with a, a ferocious Artillery barrage, and um, he, he called in fire in his own position, mm. and 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 was killed. Um, in the 1990s, uh, he uh, his uh, sacrifice was finally recognized, and he was awarded the uh, the Distinguished Service Cross, which was later upgraded to the Medal of Honor. Mm-hmm. So. Um, it all came to a head in February of 1945. Allman had designed this large uh, attack uh, to attack along the, the coast. They call it the Ligurian coast there, uh, and north, the north northwest uh, coast of, of Italy, and to attack up through some hills. And the, um, uh, he got every bit of, of fire support that he needed he had units attached to him. Um, infantry divisions at the time were not like today. They didn't have tanks uh, that were part of the division. They were attached. So he had several more tank battalions attached, and uh, he had air support. He had what whatever he needed. And and the uh, the attack failed miserably. Uh, the 366 itself pretty much collapsed as it uh, just utterly collapsed. Um, they Their casualty rate was very high. It was mostly uh, people lost on the battlefield. Um, the worst part about that was that everybody by this time was watching the 92nd. And so he had his corps commander, um, uh, General um, um, I'll think of it in a second. Anyway, his corps commander was there. Uh, Army commander General Mark Clark was there. And General Marshall, who happened to be touring Europe at the time, was all there to watch this collapse. And Allman knew he was probably going to be relieved. Uh, people have asked me, you know, why did Allman not get relieved after this horrible three days in February of 1945? And what I said a minute ago, that um, Marshall and the entire leadership of the Army figured if Allman can't, couldn't get anything out of him, it couldn't be done. So they did the best they could do. So no, no mark on almond. There were some leadership issues uh, from regiment on down, but I think this is the point at which almond decided that black soldiers as a group cannot um, cannot function. Um, Black units would be unsuccessful. Interesting how the army is going to play that later on, but. Marshall asked him what he needed to do to succeed. And he basically placed his hand on the map right behind all the, the infantry and said, all the artillery engineers, all those guys, all those are good. They're fine. They're doing well. The artillery was tremendous. He needed everything above that line. All the infantry needed to replaced. So Marshall agreed. And what Allman did was to reorganize the division, he took all the best soldiers out of the regiments, wherever regiments they were in, and he put them in the 370th. That was his best. Uh, he took 370th marginal performers out and put them in the other two. The 365th and the 371st were the other two organic regiments he'd brought with him. And he sent them back to the core training area to retrain. Uh, they had new soldiers now. And, uh and uh, and then they were they were put in in uh, first Army Reserve and then corps Reserve uh, to be used elsewhere but they they need to go back for training the 366 which was the separate regiment um, was broken up and um, they built at least two general service engineer regiments out of the 366 366 entry was inactivated and just didn't exist anymore and they went off to, to other units, and they re- didn't serve in combat anymore. Um, to replace the two regiments that were pulled out, Allman got the uh, 473rd Infantry Regiment, which had been a, um, a uh, it was made up of soldiers who had been uh, in um, anti-aircraft artillery units, AAA units. As I said, the Allies owned the skies in Italy, and we really did not need all the AAA units we had, so several of them were were reconfigured in, into infantry regiments. And uh, 473rd was one of those as a white unit, and it was uh, commanded by um, a guy that really didn't cut the mustard with uh, with Almond, and Almond got rid of him and got um, um, oh, the great airborne leader. Anyway of his name a second. Uh, it, he uh, commanded uh, that regiment. And then to fill out the third regiment, Alman got the 442nd Infantry, the Nisei Regiment. Now, let me just say a little bit about the Nisei, because this was a, an absolutely stunning regiment. The, the, the 442nd had already been in Italy. Um, they had uh, uh, stumbled a little bit on, at, at first, but then uh, after about their, their first battle, they, uh, they, they found their feet, and it they became tremendous. They became the 442nd of legend that we know. Um, they were well on their way to being the most decorated unit in the Army, Already, they had uh, something like eight Presidential Unit Citations and hundreds and hundreds of Silver Stars and Distinguished Service Crosses. Uh, after the um, uh, the fall of Rome, they were switched to. Uh, they were part of the invasion force, and went to uh, went to France. They did the same thing in France that they had done in Italy, and they just. They just tore the place up. Uh, then they got orders to go back to Italy, and this time they left their their artillery battalion uh, in France, and they just came as uh, as as infantry, and they were they were attached to the division. Initially, there was some friction uh, because the Nisei, you know, want to know, you know, why are we here in Italy cleaning up somebody else's mess. And what have these people done? What what have they done? And in their first attack, uh, as one of them put it, they they gained more ground in in six hours than than one of the black regiments had done in or that the division had done in six months. And so they want to know, you know, why are we here? But then they started to realize just how much discrimination that the the black soldiers had faced. And they they felt a little, little bit of kinship with them. Um, there were some uh, fairly famous people in the in the 92nd at this time. Uh, lieutenant Edward Edwin Brooke, uh, later senator from Massachusetts, was a uh, was a lieutenant in the 92nd. Um, Vernon Baker was one of the lieutenants. We'll talk about him in a minute. And then out of the uh, the 442nd Infantry had. Uh, a, uh, a young lieutenant who had been promoted battlefield promotion um, named um, uh, inaway from Hawaii uh, he was in the hundredth 100th, uh, 100th battalion uh, Daniel inaway uh, was was nearly killed in an assault and, um, and the the um, association of the U- US Army put out a, a little uh, a booklet, this year about, about him that shows what, what he went through. It was just tremendous. Uh, You, you just can't believe that, uh, that somebody could go through what he did. He was, his right arm was completely mangled and and useless. Uh, He went to the hospital and he had to have many, many, many blood transfusions. And he said he realized later that uh, the transfusions he received were from black soldiers. And they saved his life, so he became a champion for for uh, for for uh, civil rights and and uh, and African Americans for the rest of his, his career in the, in the Senate. Um, while he was there uh, in in the hospital, he, he was uh, uh, met a, another young lieutenant from a from a, a different infantry division in the uh, uh, in the corps uh, or in in the, in the neighboring corps uh, named Bob Dole. So Lieutenant Bob Dole and Lieutenant, uh, Daniel, um, in a way were actually met, uh, while they were, uh, in a hospital recuperating with very similar injuries as it turned out. Mm-hmm. And then of course served for decades together in the, in the Senate. Now I mentioned Vernon Baker. Uh, Baker was, uh, one of those who was, uh, Incredibly heroic, and he later got the Medal of Honor in the 1990s. But what's significant about him is that he was the first soldier to receive the Distinguished Service Cross in the in the division. If you read um, Baker's uh, biography or autobiography, there's a lot of a lot of bad blood between him and and almond and white soldiers generally. But uh, really, um, I think he uh, he got a fairly good shake. I mean, he, he, got the, he got the Distinguished Service Cross while he was there. He um, deserved Medal of Honor 50 years later. Maybe he deserved it then too. But unlike John Fox, uh, John Fox's award was actually stopped at division headquarters. Allman did not believe at that time in, um, in rewarding failing efforts, even if they were heroic. He later changed his thoughts on that when he got to Korea. Right. So
1: what did Allman do between World War II and the Korean War?
0: Okay. Just after uh, the war ended, uh, he turned over command. He was ordered to, to the states to take command of the 2nd Infantry Division, which was headed to Japan for the planned invasion of Japan. So uh, he turned over command of the of the ninety second to his uh, assistant division commander Joe Wood and, and um, went back to the states. Uh, he took a little leave and route. Uh, He's supposed to go to, to uh, Camp Swift, Texas, which is right right outside Austin. And uh, but by the time he got there, the war was over and they were they were in in uh, they were then demobilizing the army instead of. Uh, Instead of preparing for the invasion, he commanded the second for another uh, uh, couple of years. Well, another year or so, and then um, he got orders to go back overseas. Uh, based on time overseas, he was had few less time overseas than his than his uh, brother uh, brother General officers did. So he went to uh, to uh, AFPAC, Armed Forces Pacific Headquarters. In Tokyo. He went to uh, General um, MacArthur's staff. He'd never met MacArthur. Uh, He had no connection with him at all. As a matter of fact, uh, he was in that category of people that that MacArthur suspected deeply because uh, first of all, he had never worked for him, so therefore that made him suspicious. And he had worked for uh, Mark Clark. So he was suspicious of him. That's kind of one of the amazing parts about Allman's story. Allman went from a complete unknown, an outsider with suspicious credentials, uh, to being MacArthur's one of MacArthur's most trusted confidants. And he did that in about two years. So what
1: what was uh, Allman's role when the Korean War started? And how did he get uh, into his legendary position?
0: Okay. Um he was the um, he was the chief of staff of the military side of Far East Command. AFPAC had had changed uh formation to Far East Command, uh FECOM and, and then had a, a a government side sort of ran the the, uh, the occupation side of, of Japan and then the the military side that was kind of overall the units, each one of those had a, had a, uh, deputy chief of staff going up to a chief of staff. Well, he was the chief of staff, uh, just before the, uh, the war started, but he'd been the military side, deputy chief of staff for, for most of that time. Um, when the war started and MacArthur be- began planning to send troops, um, and at this time, uh, the United States had, had excluded Korea from our defense perimeter. We just did not imagine that we would ever need to go there. There were other things we needed to do around the world anyway. And we'd pulled all our units out of there. And uh, so there was nothing, there's no thought that we would go to Korea until the North Koreans invaded and our policy changed literally overnight. Uh, President Truman decided um, to commit troops because this was going to be the first operation that the United Nations mounted. And the the U.S. had been one of the major um, organizers of the United Nations, and he wanted to show the rest of the world that the United States was 100% behind this United Nations. So that's, that's why it became the United Nations Command and that sort of thing. Um, Almond put together a planning staff in a hangar at, at one of the airfields around Seoul, and or in, in Tokyo, and and um, he called it the the um, X Force because he couldn't tell anybody what was there, uh, you know, kind of keep it secret. We do this, we still do this kind of thing today, but uh, it was called the X Force, so nobody would know what it was. It was an unmarked building, that kind of thing. Uh, Army bureaucracy being what it is, they got to the point that they could continue with planning, but they were running out of the ability to interface with the um, with the rest of the Army because they weren't an actual unit. So uh, Alman, uh said that we needed to designate a core headquarters. Um, now, Almond's is a smart guy and he. He figured that a way to sell this to MacArthur, since they were already the X-Force, is uh, they would call it the 10th Corps. The 10th Corps being uh, its symbol, its its patch was a a blue X, uh, Roman numeral 10. The 10th Corps had served under MacArthur in the Pacific during World War II. That was the key part of that whole thing. So um, Almond. Uh, MacArthur authorized it and and then notified the Department of the Army, which didn't really go over well in Washington, but they didn't they backed him up. And so so Almond um, uh, activated the 10th Corps. And he said, "Now we we need a commander." And uh, MacArthur said, "Well, you're it." Almond said hmm. he, he has never backed off this. He always said he was completely stunned when uh, when MacArthur told him that, because he didn't imagine that he would be the guy. He thought he was going to be the remain the FECOM chief of staff. Um, they even had a discussion about how possible is this going to be? And MacArthur said, don't worry about it. You'll be, you know, troops will be home by Christmas. We've been saying that since Valley Forge. Um So uh, that's why he chose not to put put anybody else, you know, not to take him out of the chief of staff position and and leave him as the the corps commander. Now that has been a tremendous bone of contention among historians and army officers even to this day about him being the chief of staff and also the corps commander. I got to tell you, in some ways, it's a tempest in a teapot because. The uh, the today, the commanding general of the eighth army is the chief of staff of the United Nations, the U.S. Forces Korea, so it's still there. Um, it had a lot to do with personalities, and um, Ullman by by personality, from the moment he became the corps commander, he was 100% focused on building the corps. That said, the thing that irritated people is that he would request something as the Corps commander and approve it as the chief of staff. And yep, that happened. And, 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 uh, and Allman would probably admit that it happened and, in, and dare you to find a better way to do that. So, you know. So how
1: did the 10th Corps um, perform in the Korean war?
0: Surprisingly well compared to given its history and to back up a little bit, the 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 Eighth Army had been um, deployed uh, to to the south, southern portion of Korea, and eventually backed up into the southeast corner, what became the Pusan Perimeter. Uh, General Walton Walker was the uh, the oh. the Eighth Army commander, and um, he took at the time there were there had been four divisions in in uh, Japan on act, on on um, on occupation duty. There were no corps headquarters. Uh, and and there were no corps headquarters in uh, in the Pusan perimeter. It was the Eighth Army, Hanchoing uh four divisions, or parts of two, um, with more to follow. The army was in bad shape at this point. Um there were there were no, I think 82nd Airborne was the only completely full unit. Um, uh, the only full uh, regiments in the army were black regiments, which is an odd switch because mm-hmm. um, they had no place else for them to go. But they, um, um, each regiment was, had one inactive battalion, the tank battalion of each uh, division was inactivated. Lots and lots of, there were holes everywhere. And then, um, this also happened right after one of the draft laws had expired and there was a delay getting the next one in. So even the units that were there were not full. So um, Oman had uh, initially uh, two divisions. One was the 7th Infantry division that was uh, on occupation duty in, in uh, Japan it was stripped to fill um, units that were deploying into Korea. Um, And again, just like Italy in World War II, it was scattered in penny packets all over its sector of Japan. Uh, They hadn't really done any combat training. uh, And they were, the uh, MacArthur went to president uh, Sigmund Rhee of Korea and said, we need, we need help. We need people. And they they gathered up Korean citizens, uh, literally press-ganged them, threw them into trucks, and and took them to a ship and sailed them over to to Japan and handed them off to the Americans. Hmm. And so the the 7th Infantry Division gained like 8,000 Koreans. Uh, they became what's known then and now as the Korean augmentees to U.S. Army TUSAs. And uh, interestingly enough, let me just jump to the to the present for a second. The Second Infantry Division, which is assigned, you know, uh, you know most of it is assigned to Korea, um, it's it is actually an international division, and it's sort of, it's half Korean and half American. It's it's called the Second U.S. R.O.K. Division. So um, back to 1950, uh, these Katusas came in. There's language barrier. There's a training problem, and and very little time to do all this. So. Uh, they trained as well as they could, which in most cases was not very well. At the same time, the um uh the, the units in the states were were no better, in many cases worse. Um the first Marine Division was activated and sent to uh sent to Japan also. But the first Marine Division, President Truman was ready to get rid of the Marine Corps and the Marines had almost ceased to exist by this point. Uh, 1st Marine Division did not exist at all. Uh, there was one infantry regiment at um, at uh, Camp Pendleton, California. Uh, the artillery regiment was full. Um, so that one regiment and the artillery regiment uh, sailed immediately for for Korea as a provisional brigade to be married up with the rest of the reg- rest of the division. The rest of the division came from uh, all over the United States uh, and and uh, Marines on Guard different places, uh, recruiters, reserve unit, Marine Reserve units uh, from the Second Marine Division in Camp Lejeune, and uh, and even I think that the most uh, to give you an example of how badly it uh, they were strapped. The last unit to join the first Marine Division uh, was Third um, Battalion, Sixth Marines, which was afloat at Cyprus, and sailed around the world, and landed, reflagged as the Third Battalion, Seventh Marines, and uh, the Seventh Marines finally caught up with the uh, with the uh, rest of the division after the landing at Inchon. So uh, the Marines were really in in kind of kind of bad shape. Um, as were all the army units too, but Marines were, were especially strapped because they're much smaller than the army was. And the army was throwing people and willy nilly wherever you could find them on post they were, We were press our own people just like the Koreans were mm-hmm. And their initial, uh, uh, the initial landing at Incheon was, uh, what was a stunning success from the strategic level because it got, uh, uh the North Koreans turned around um, but the intelligence was, was correct and there really wasn't much in Inchon to defend it. And so the landing, mo- except for the initial Marine landing, most of it was initially unopposed. And the, uh, um, it really, with the exception of one of the beaches, uh, the, the 17th Division and most of the Marines just, uh, got off the ship on a, uh, at a, and a uh, a jetty and uh, or a dock, um, not not too many not too many Marines hitting the beach there. But um, Inchon's captured fairly quickly, and then they were moving on to Seoul. Uh, Seoul fell uh, pretty quickly. Uh, MacArthur was pretty um, much more um, sanguine about how that was going to happen, uh, but they 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 did eventually uh, capture Seoul. And um, this is one of those places where uh, they had a great plan until the truth changed, and the truth changed right after Seoul. Right. So how did
1: um, how did Almond and his division fare in Korea?
0: Well, as I said, the first the first part up to and including Seoul, and then the next part went pretty well. Here's why the truth changed. Um, MacArthur got permission to to having cleared Seoul, to continue to push uh, the North Koreans up across the 38th Parallel, and then a couple weeks later after that, to continue to push them up to the Yellow River, which is the border with uh, with China. Um, but in order to do this, it, it caused a tremendous reorganization of everybody in Korea. Um, uh, MacArthur loved a good assault landing. I mean, he had spent the whole Pacific sending um, amphibious operations around the Pacific. Inchon had succeeded beyond anybody's wildest dreams. And he and everybody figured, okay, we thought he's a lunatic, but we didn't say anything then because he's, uh, you know, a demigod. But turns out he's pretty smart and we got it right. So he might be right this time. Well, he wasn't really. (laughs) What he wanted to do was pull the 10th Corps out. And land them make another assault landing at Wansan on, on the uh, on the east coast, which would cut off a lot of the time spent driving around the peninsula and that sort of thing. Lots of reasons that that, that, that didn't work quite as well as anybody hoped it would, and it ended up being an, an unopposed landing because the the rock army had pushed the North Koreans so far north that it was no longer uh, no longer a threat. Um, Allman, for this operation, once he hit the beach with the uh, 7th Infantry Division and the 1st Marine Division, he was assigned the 3rd Infantry Division, which had experienced some of the same problems that the other ones did. And matter of fact, it's uh, they they had so few people they, they had inactivated one regiment back in the states and put everybody in two regiments, and they were assigned a third regiment, a separate regiment from Puerto Rico. And uh, they didn't meet them until they got on the beach. So um, Ullman assaulted up to the, um, uh, up to the North, to the Yalu uh, with uh, the first Marine division, the seventh infantry division and the uh, third Marine division. And that's where it all started to go very, very badly. Um, uh, several things happened to, to cause that. One is that the, the North Koreans had moved so fast; uh, it was just a pell mell pursuit. Everybody really thought the war was over uh, mm. when they were waiting to land at once. they were just making plans for what happens next, and so they really thought that this was kind of a mopping up operation. They didn't really give any credence to the to the North Koreans. Second, um, depending on who you talk to, they uh, they the intel was not as good as it should have been. The 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 FECOM intel and the the core intel and eighth army intel didn't didn't really match. And even if it had, again, they didn't really put much credence in the fact that the, they were North Koreans. They started to see some Chinese, but they really didn't put much stock in that either because they figured you know the Chinese aren't really gonna you know, attack with thousands of human wave assault battalions. That would be crazy. Um, And any other thing that happened was that uh, Korea then experienced the worst winter it had had in decades. And, um, the temperatures, especially inland, uh, dropped down to to life threatening levels. And we're talking thirty below zero, and equipment breaking and people freezing that that, that sort of thing. In the midst of all this, the the Chinese did exactly what uh, Intel predicted they wouldn't, and which was they uh, they attacked with uh, human wave assault battalions, and um, that. Uh, the chosen reservoir was was um, was sort of ground zero for the attack that came against Almond's half of the um, of the perimeter. Now, part of the the discussion that's gone on over the past several years is Eighth Army was in the west, Tenth uh, Corps was in the east, and they were not they're not really linked up. Allman was supposed to, Allman sent patrols to try to link up with them, but um, that terrain in, in that part of, of North Korea looks like the Alps, and there's just no, there's no good east-west roads really anywhere in Korea, there's one or two, most of them run north-south, and, and there really wasn't any any way to, to effectively get between, um, uh, to run any sort of lines of communication between the Eighth Army in the West and the Tenth Corps in the East. What you could do, however, is uh, sneak in hundreds and thousands of uh, of dismounted uh, Chinese infantry, which is exactly what they did. Um, they were uh, not heavily armed or armored. They had some artillery, uh, some air, but mostly it was it was lots and lots of of uh, Chinese infantry that that. Overwhelmed a lot of uh, a lot of positions. Well, I did have did have a fair number of artillery too, but um, it affected the Ch- the weather affected the Chinese just as bad as it did uh, the Allies. Probably even worse because they had worse equipment than than uh, than the Americans did, and they had literally thousands of soldiers that were frozen to death in place. So that started a um, what. Later became when 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 um, MacArthur realized how bad it was, he ordered Eighth uh, Army and Tenth Corps to retreat back to the south, and um, that started really the longest retreat retreat in U.S. Army history. And the um, um, Almond was very he was um, he was very moved by how things had been in the Pusan perimeter just a few months before. And as chief of staff, he'd gone over with, with MacArthur and seen how MacArthur was dead set against uh, evacuation from Pusan. Um, he wanted to make sure that this was not a, a Dunkirk where everybody just dropped everything and ran for the beach. Um, he evacuated using the, many of the same ships that had, made, had landed him there. But he did it in a very well-ordered fashion, and managed to keep all of his material and yeah. uh, troops as together as possible. And so, um, yeah. when he arrived back in South Korea, they had some reorganization to do, but they were they were ready to go back into combat again, and they did. Um,
1: can you talk a little bit about almonds? Legacy and what he, why he's important, and why you think he's been overlooked.
0: Yeah, well, his legacy really came from those two, those two actions. Everybody knows him as, as the racist from World War II, and and as MacArthur's sycophant from Korea. Um, uh, to a certain extent, both of those are true, but what it, it's much more nuanced than that. Because I think what we've done. For Allman, the racist, um, he's been he's been Hitlerized. Um, And by that, I mean this. There are people who want to assign him as as being the only racist. He was the racist in the army in the 1940s. Nobody else was. Uh, That gives everybody else a pass. Um, And I think that's wrong because the army was a a paternalist organization. I don't think it was, the Army would not have considered itself racist. It considered itself paternalist. It, senior officers understood what the challenges that black soldiers faced as as civilians before they came in the Army. And they felt they needed to take care of them from a paternalist kind of uh, standpoint. That said, and that paternalism is you know it it it's somewhat akin to what the army does. you know if you're in my unit, I'm taking care of you even if h um, but the country itself was racist and, and and it it was simply the water that everybody swims in. there are people who have said to me, well, you know you can't um, you can't just say he's a product of his of his environment and leave it at that well, that's true, but that's a that is an absolutely true statement. That is the environment. And by making Almond the racist, then we let everybody else off the hook. And it, in fact, was a racist, discriminatory society. And it is very, very tough in these days, especially when we see all the things that are going on in this country. Um, and and we don't like to look back at the the. Um, the greatest generation and say they were racist. Well, they were. My dad is a World War II veteran. You know, um, he had certain attitudes. He wouldn't consider himself racist. Um, the, um, Allman's grandson is uh, is a friend of mine, um, which I later met him as part of the research for this book. Um, he doesn't like it when I call his grandfather a racist, but I wouldn't like it if you call my grandfather a racist either. But he was. And and I think if we if we just assign that to one person, we let society off the hook. And what when I say the environment, there's there are some important considerations here. Allman was born in 1892. Plessy v. Ferguson, uh, the Supreme Court decision that decided in separate but equal segregation was decided in 1896. Almond retired from the army in January, 1953 and Brown v. Board of Education, which finally did away with separate, but equal was decided, was handed down in 1954. So his entire formative youth and professional career were in the context of a, uh, of a segregated society. And it's, um, I think a lot of people today, a lot of white people today really don't understand just exactly how segregated the world was then. I spoke in Philadelphia last fall and one of the ladies at the the talk was amazed. She didn't, didn't know that the army was segregated. So we forget those things. and uh, And then we see all the things that are going on, today, and we think, why is this happening? Well, this is why it's happening. And the other thing is, um, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, if you want to finish, go ahead. Yeah. The other thing he's most noted for is his relationship with MacArthur. Um, He certainly was MacArthur's greatest champion. Uh, And MacArthur helped him out, you know, a lot. But but I think the part that is missed there is what I – what I referred to a few minutes ago, he, he went from non-entity with questionable credentials in in MacArthur's eyes to being one of MacArthur's most trusted confidants in a little under two years. And how did he do that? He did it by being a, a tremendous officer who, 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 who got things done. Uh, he made, he made the staff run and, um, and, he made his peers, superiors, and subordinates trust him, and and I think that's what that's what every officer has to do. He was also a tremendous uh, judge of of character too. I said, you know, he relieved people right, left, and center. One of his regimental commanders that he relieved in World War II in training. He had ordered the, even though the division was segregated, he ordered the officers' mess to be integrated because they were officers first and white or black second. One of his regimental commanders re-segregated his own mess and Allman relieved him. So um, that's when I say that he was a great judge of character, on that side, he relieved a lot of people. On the other side, the people who didn't get relieved became general officers. Uh, There's a great picture of the 10th, him with the 10th Corps staff and every single one of his regimental commanders and every single primary staff officer, except one, uh, later became a general officer. And, uh, the one was cause he was murdered, uh, in, in, in civilian world. But, um, the, uh, uh, and, and that, that, that sheer competence, uh, which came out of his, uh, voracious appetite for reading and study and and his ability and his teaching ability that's that's the nuance that a lot of people uh miss with almond
1: well mike um we've taken up a lot of your time um are you
0: working on any new projects well i <clears throat> i have a couple things i'm i'm uh, working on for work oddly enough in the in the pacific area uh but um more importantly, I think my mo- my next uh, civilian project I'm starting to to think about and gather data on now is the um, um, Operation New Arrival, which was the um, the resettlement of Vietnamese refugees uh, right at the end of um, of uh, the the Vietnamese War in uh, in the United States. So I think that's that's where I'm gonna gonna try to go next.
1: Well, sounds like a fascinating project. Um, thanks for, for chatting with me and we look forward to your next project.
0: All right. Well, thanks very much. I appreciate it. And once again, I, I appreciate the opportunity from New Books Network to to uh, talk about uh, my book.